This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Deacon Matt Woodley and is part two of our fully scriptural series. Um, just a couple of quick announcements. So this is a second week in a sermon series we are doing called Fully Scriptural. And that is one of our five S's, we call them, things that start with S, taken from the New Testament book of Acts, which kind of serve as the kind of bedrock values and way we do church here at Church of the Resurrection. The first one is fully scriptural, so we're spending five weeks on that. Father Brett preached last week, and then uh, Bishop Stewart's going to preach the next two weeks, and then I'll close out the series. So that's what we're in. So we're really and we're encouraging you to do something different, maybe for some of you. Um, we're encouraging you, to, asking you to bring your actual Bible next week and to follow it along. There's something amazing about actually opening a book. Remember those? Um, they're still around. They're quite popular. And um, you can open it. And Bishop Stewart has explicitly said, so we asked him, can people look it up on their cell phone? No, no. You open your cell phone, you've opened a gateway drug to distractions. So just bring the book. Bring the physical book. Um, if, you, if a new person comes and they don't have a Bible, we have Bibles for them. To follow along. We're using the ESV translation, and that brings, makes a difference for you, but you don't have to bring that. And then the last thing is that um, I prepared a handout, a resource called How to Start Reading the Bible. Um, it's either starting or restarting. If you're not, if you don't really have a routine, this is, I'm just sharing my, I guess, liturgy, my daily liturgy for how I read the Word of God and make it really practical and personal to me. So just, it's just a two-sided thing, very simple. Maybe you'll get one or two ideas from that that will spark your own discipline, your own liturgy of getting into God's Word on a regular basis. So in the 1970s, there was a really successful and actually a really brilliant ad campaign. And it was an ad campaign with a really simple tagline. And all of these ads for this company, is for a financial company, and all of these ads showed really rich people living very privileged lives, doing very privileged things. So they would be at a very fancy restaurant, eating dinner, clinking glasses, talking, having a great time. They'd be by a, a pool, and they would be talking and laughing and swimming and diving. And then the conversation would turn to one of the people who would turn to his or her person on the left and say, well, you know, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says... And then there was this silence. And then everybody would stop what they were doing, stop eating, stop drinking, stop swimming, stop diving. And they would just kind of like all like move and lean in around this person. Because you want to hear what E.F. Hutton says. And the tagline was, because when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. And I thought of that as I was working on Hebrews. Because that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Not E.F. Hutton, but he's saying, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And when Jesus says, and he wants us, oh, the author of Hebrews wants us to like, what? I want to lean in. I want to listen with my brain, with my heart, with my mind, with my body. I want to lean in and listen. That's the message of this passage that you heard. So we got the prologue to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And then we flipped, skipped some verses, and then went to the first four verses of chapter 2. And it's kind of this beautiful symmetry between the eight verses. So first four verses on the left side of page 8 in your bulletin is who Jesus is. 
The first four verses of chapter 2 is how you should respond to Jesus. First is, this is theology. This is truth. Second is, this is how you live your life. This is how you orient your life and your heart. This is how you do your hard listening. The author of Hebrews, it's amazing because we don't know who this author is. It's an anonymous author, and there's all kinds of theories. I don't think anybody really knows, which totally is so fun because here you have probably the best writer of Greek in the New Testament, incredibly polished prose, beautiful prose, gorgeous prose. He's artistic, writes this, he or she or they or a committee. My son-in-law thinks it was a committee like the King James Bible. I don't, I don't know. We, but the fact is we don't know, and that's so cool. So there's this genius walking around in the er, very early church who's integrating theology and literature, and, and, and we don't know who it is. I don't know. I just find that really fun. But this passage is really rich, and there's a lot of great words in it and great images in it. But I want to summarize it to you in six words. And I'm not trying to be clever because I really think you can, you can summarize it in six words. And it's this. God speaks in Jesus. Pay attention. God speaks in Jesus, period, or, semi, or colon, or semicolon, or em dash, or whatever you want to put there. God speaks in Jesus. Pay attention. So I want to look at each one of those little two-word phrases. So it starts in verse 1 with a very simple and bold and audacious claim. God speaks. Verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Why did God speak? I just want to ask two questions about that. Why and how? Why did he speak? Because he didn't have to speak. He didn't have to communicate. God could have lived a very private life. God could have said, look, I'm a kind of a private God, and I just don't want you to really know my heart and what's going on. He didn't do that. Why? Well, why do you speak? Why does a baby, when a baby's born, immediately starts talking, speaking? So when my daughter was born 31 years ago, she started speaking. Where? That's a word. That's communication. It means very different things depending on the context. And then all of a sudden, she's five years old. We're driving around, just the two of us, and she's in the back seat, and we're going on a father-daughter date, and she doesn't stop talking. So we go to McDonald's, I get her a chocolate shake for the next half hour, she's silent. Just hear this silent sucking coming from the back seat. But she wouldn't stop. Why do we talk? Why do kids talk? Why do adults talk? Why do lovers talk? Why do friends talk? Because you want to communicate something. You have something to say, something on your heart, something on your mind, something that you want, something that you need, something that you believe, something that you're convinced of, something that's important to you, something that's just chatty. And you just want to, you want a relationship. Well, God is no different. God, we're made in God's image, not the other way around. So of course God's going to want to communicate. Of course God's going to want to share his heart. So God speaks. One theologian put it this way. <clears throat> One theologian said that God forfeits his own personal privacy so we can know him. I love that. God gives up his personal privacy so we can know him, know his heart, know his will. Now, how did God speak? So this passage says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's the first stage of God's communication. God spoke by the prophets 
at many times and in many ways is actually a really gorgeous little Greek phrase that's got some alliteration in it that loses something in the English translation. But it means God has spoken throughout a long period of time, many times throughout history. And God has spoken in many ways. There's not just one mode of communication, not just one genre. There's all kinds of genres in the Bible. All kinds of, there's, there's poetry, there's wisdom literature, there's, there's narrative, there's commandments, there's proverbs. God is speaking, God is wooing, God is commanding, God is sharing his heart, God is even singing at times. God is always communicating in many different ways, the author of Hebrews is telling us. Now notice, it is by the prophets. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Who were the prophets? Well, he's probably referring to every single author of the Bible, every single author of the Old Testament at this time. All of them. God spoke by all of them. And they were, who were they? Well, first of all, they were human beings. They were people. You know, if you were God and you wanted to communicate to the human race, what would you do? Well, you could dictate your entire message through one person. All the words dictated, and then you'd have your message. There's a religion that believes that. Or you could believe that God sent his word on golden plates and gave them to an angel. There's a religion that believes that. Christianity, and Jews as well, believe that God spoke through human beings. Ordinary people, particular people, imperfect people. Why does he do that? Because it really is the most inefficient way to do it. It takes a long time. You get human beings involved in it. You know it's going to get complicated because God is incarnational. He comes to us on our level and takes on flesh in his son Jesus. And so he's going to communicate the Bible to us. In, in a way, it's no different that God speaks to, he breathes his message into human beings and that is how his truth gets to us. So God speaks to us. That's the bold and audacious claim. The second thing is he speaks to us by Jesus. Notice verse 2. But in these last days, and the last days are just from the time after Jesus till the end of history. So we're in the last days. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Literally, in son. In Jesus. God has spoken in Jesus. Now, the first stage of by the prophets isn't obsolete. We don't dis disregard it. We don't minimize it. It's still there. But Jesus is now the one who is, I like to think of Jesus, he's the interpretive key. He's the interpretive key to unlock the meaning of the entire scripture. One of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, a man who was a bishop, lived about 140 maybe um, you know, shortly, a couple generations after the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, he had this beautiful image. He said, the scripture is like this big mosaic with all these little pieces in it. And sometimes we can look at a little piece and we don't know, what does that piece mean? And it's just kind of a weird, that's a weird little piece and that's such a weird shape. And what does that mean? Well, he said, you got to start by backing up and seeing the whole picture. You have to see this picture of a king. And he said that people, when they get the Bible wrong, usually what they have is they have the right pieces, but they don't understand the picture. And the early church was just really, really brilliant about this and really clear about this. 
The picture, the mosaic is Jesus. And that's how all the pieces fit together. And so God is speaking to us in and through Jesus. That doesn't mean that Jesus spoke every word, but Jesus is the interpretive key. He's the mosaic. He's how it all ends together. It's one story about one hero with one plot and one narrative arc. So the author of Hebrews, he says, I want you to remember who Jesus is. Let's just go back to basics. Let's go back to the fundamental truths of who Jesus is. And then in verses 2, 3, and 4, he lists seven things about Jesus. And I'm not going to cover all of them, but just let me give you a few of them. So first of all, he says, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, it's kind of like he's setting up bookends. Jesus created the world. He was there. At the end of the world, Jesus is going to inherit it all. He's at the beginning and he's at the end. That's why when the early church read the scripture, they saw Jesus all over the place. It's like, I, I love getting pop-up books for my grandkids. You know, you're the, you turn the page and something boop, pops up, a frog or a squirrel or a tree or something. Well, the early church, literally like almost every page, boop, Jesus pops up, boom, Jesus pops up. He's there, he's walking, he's working, or we're waiting for him, or he's the promise, or he's the hope of the text, or he's the one that fulfills the text. They found him everywhere. That's one thing about Jesus. The second thing is he says that Jesus, in verse 3, he says he's the imprint or the stamp of the exact nature of God. It's a great Greek word. It's a great image. It was the imprint, think of like a press, that would stamp the head of an emperor on a coin. Jesus, or the writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus is that exact stamp or imprint of the nature of God. Let me talk to just a couple other things from this passage. He says, after making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. It's a beautiful image. The image, the assumption is, is that sin leaves a stain. Sin leaves a mark that most of us try usually through good works to get rid of, to erase the stain, to become pure, to become new inside. So we're working hard to overcome our shame. We're working hard to overcome our guilt. And the scripture says, Jesus has made purification for us. And then he sat down, which is an image of job's done. I did it. It's finished. There's nothing you can add to this to make purification for sin. You can only receive it as a free gift. That's beautiful. One more thing. So in verse 4, he says that Jesus is superior. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a religious leader. He's not just an angel. He's not just a messenger. He's superior. It's one of the author of Hebrews' favorite words. He uses it 13 times. It just means better, flat out better. Jesus is better than that. Jesus is the best, he says. He puts himself out there. Now, I just want to say, when a lot of us, when we hear that, oh, my religion is superior, my religion is better, a little alarm goes off. Oh, boy, that's bad. 
That's going to lead to oppression. That's going to lead to religious violence. That's, going to lead, that's what led to colonialism. That's what led to all this really bad stuff. Christians being smug. Christians being arrogant. But think of this, though. If you, make, if you believe that Jesus, you believe is better. You just believe he's the, he is the Son of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. There's something special about him. And you put him at the center of your life. Who are you putting at the center of your life? Think about it. Somebody that was born in a barn, somebody that hung around with the poor and the marginalized, somebody that was the the friend of sinners, somebody that died naked and alone on a Roman cross, somebody that when he was dying prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If you put that person at the center of your life and revolve your life around him and listen to him and lean in and listen to him, there's no way you're going to be an oppressor of other people. Or you just don't have the real Jesus. You're not listening to Jesus. You're not really leaning in. Jesus sets us free from that. So God is speaking in Jesus. And sometimes when you've heard Jesus, it's hard to get away from him. There's a writer named John Jeremiah Sullivan. Maybe you haven't heard of him, but he's been compared to um, David Foster Wallace. He's been compared to a lot of just great contemporary writers. He's an essayist, novelist. He said he went through, in his life, he went through what he called the Jesus, this Jesus phase. And he said he gets together with his secular, skeptical friends, and they mock and laugh about their Jesus phase that they went through. But he said, in his more honest moments, he hasn't gotten over his Jesus phase. And here's what he wrote, very honestly. He said, my problem isn't that I feel like I'm in hell or I feel psychologically harmed by my Jesus phase. My problem is that I just love Jesus still. Why should he bother me so much? Why can't I just be a good child of the enlightenment, see him as just a good example? And Sullivan said, once you've known Jesus as God, it's hard to find comfort in Jesus as just another man or a prophet or a religious leader. And even after years of unbelief, he admitted, one still has doubts about one's doubts. The author of Hebrews says, lean in, listen, pay attention. That's what he gets to in, verse, in the second section. So there's a therefore, which marks the second section. Now he's going to say, now here's your response. This is who Jesus is. This is how you live your life. So chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. The word for drift was a great Greek word. It was like a boat drifting away from the dock. It was used for that. It was used of a ring slipping off a finger. It was used as a, as a guest at a meal, slipping away. Not saying goodbye, just slipping away. You know, it's never good when something drifts. When you're going down the highway, and you're driving, and it's night, and you're going 70 miles an hour, and you get sleepy, and you start drifting, that's usually bad. If you're a Minnesota fisherman, and you're out fishing, and you come in, and you don't put the boat, you don't tie it up to the dock, and it starts to drift, that's usually bad. When I moved to Long Island, people told me about riptides. I'd never lived by an ocean. I said, riptides? How bad could that be? I can handle a riptide. They said, no, you drift into the riptide, you're going to die unless somebody rescues you. They're bad. It's bad to drift. You know what the, the author of Hebrews is telling us? Human beings, spiritually speaking, we don't live in a prairie. We live on a river. There's motion. There's always movement. 
You're always moving one direction or another, but you're not staying still. So you're either a leaf and you're just being taken wherever the stream is going to take you, just go with the flow, or you're a human being. You're a child of God. You listen to Jesus and you respond and you go where he's going to take you. You don't just let the current take you wherever it's going to go. He says, tune in. So he says, pay attention. Or literally, it is exceedingly necessary that you pay attention. Your life depends on this. Start listening. And let me just give a little pastoral advice. If you're not reading the Bible, if you're having a hard time reading the Bible, if you're struggling with the really hard parts of the Bible, I hope I'm going to say something about that in three weeks, but just for now, focus on the parts of the Bible that you can understand. Respond to that. Listen to that. Did you hear our gospel reading this morning? That would be a great place to start. Put yourself into the story. You're the disciples. You're hearing Jesus. Follow me, and I will make you a fisherman. How do you respond to that? Where's your life not in line with that? What does that mean to you? What is the Lord saying to you through that? How is the Lord speaking to you? Lean into something that you can understand. Start listening there. Because it is so easy to drift away and neglect even the things we love the most. If you're married, it's easy to drift away from your spouse, to stop listening. You neglect that relationship. If you have friendships, you neglect them. I bet if I had you raise your hand, if you've neglected an important friendship in your life, I bet everybody in this room would raise their hand. We neglect the things that matter. And so the writer of Hebrews says in verse 3, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? <clears throat> Don't neglect the fact that God has lavished you with his grace when you didn't deserve it. Don't neglect the fact that you have this mission from God, no matter who you are or what your job is. God has a mission for you. Don't neglect that in spite of your sins and your failures this week, Jesus Christ says, there is no condemnation for those who are in me. Don't neglect that. Don't neglect the fact that you can go into God's presence and say, Abba, Father, I'm your daughter. I'm your son. Don't neglect such a great salvation. Brothers and sisters, have you ever drifted? You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes I think I'm the chief of drifters, because I know my own heart. Have you ever drifted? Do you know what that's like? Are you drifting now? Where's your life at? Where are you? You know, Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned, they started to hide from God, and God came after them. God pursued, as he always does, and he called out to Adam, and he said, Adam, where are you? Put yourself in that story. You're Adam. God's asking, where are you? Where are you today? You know, God has this amazing mercy to intervene and to call drifters back to himself. I was in Brazil this June. Greetings, Brazilian friends. I was in Brazil. It's like I've always wanted to go to Brazil. Brazil is amazing. This culture, this fusion of cultures, the food, the dance, the soccer, Pele, everything. They got it all, you know. So I'm at a conference, 
and I am having a terrible time. Lost my luggage. Actually, it was my fault, but I blamed it on the airline. So <laughs> three days in, I'm in Brazil. It's hot. Got one shirt, the same shirt. So the women that were working at this conference, that's a nice shirt. You've had it on three days. I know. Lost my luggage. So everybody's scurrying around trying to find my luggage. I'm on a ledge looking at the ocean. A wave comes in. I jump back off the ledge, twist my knee, swelling up like this. I'm like, I just want to go home. I've always wanted to go to Brazil, but now I just want to go home. And spiritually, I've got a really bad attitude. I'm like one of the two English speakers there. They're trying to translate for me. I can't understand anything. I don't know what's going on. Brazilians for me, a Minnesota boy, a little over the top for me, a little emotional, a little energetic, a little enthusiastic. I'm in the middle of a revival, but just I'm having a hard time. And as always, God will send something. He will give us something to wake us up, to bring us back. So these crazy Brazilian intercessors, prayer warriors, they started praying for my knee. I thought, you can pray for it, but I don't think much is going to happen, really. Unbelief. That's where I was at. So they start praying, and they start doing the shaking thing, and it's all crazy, and I'm like really uncomfortable. The whole rest of the time, no pain in my knee. I mean, it's like a balloon. I could show you a picture of it. I sent it to my son, who's an ER doctor. He's like, Dad, you really did a good job of tearing something in your knee. Nothing torn, no pain. God didn't do anything about the swelling, but, you know, they didn't pray for that. But no pain. <laughs> a miracle. See, that is often, I just, I want to use that illustration, not only because it's an illustration of how God brings drifters back, but also because it's an illustration of how God does it. Look at verse 4. Well, God also bore witnesses by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What's he talking about? He's talking about life in the church. He's talking about life in the church when stuff happens in the church and God touches you and it might be a huge, big, dramatic miracle or it might just be a little tiny thing and God speaks to you and God shows you something and he proves that his word is true in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we get brought back home. So where are you today? If you're drifting, if you're not paying attention, you can start today. Our God is merciful. Later on in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews said this, one of my favorite verses in the whole book. He says, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is for you. He's not against you. You can come to him. He will take you back. Lay aside the sin which is wrapped around you, the writer of Hebrews says later, and fix your eyes on Jesus. Start listening to him. Lean in. Come home today. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, 
check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.